You know, when it comes to having a relationship with Jesus Christ, there are some whose journey really does take a, a, a degree of time. It's a, it's a long process for them to come to faith. They, they, they weigh the evidence, they test the claims, they observe those who believe and are believers. Uh, they, they observe them with a keen and a, and a critical eye, wondering if this is to be true. And, and, and their decision really comes as a result of a, of a long process, but one that is guided by the Spirit of God and finally arrives at a place of decision at a place where they, they see Jesus Christ and in seeing him, then are able to take him to heart. There are others, on the other hand, whose journey is more like a collision, a head-on encounter with uh, Jesus Christ, a, a sudden awakening. And, the, and, and, and when they run into Jesus, it's as if their world somehow shakes with change. Uh, last week, we, got, we, we looked at the beginning of Luke chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, turn there to Luke chapter 19. Because there we, we saw an example of the second kind of, of conversion, the sudden type. Zacchaeus meets Jesus, or I should probably say Jesus ran into Zacchaeus. And, and the words in that passage are all very abrupt. They're, they're urgent. They're immediate. If you look at Luke 19 at verse 5, it says, uh, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. And, uh, the words are right there. Luke is is very, very careful to include the urgency of this all. In verse 6, it says, And he came down at once. And in verse 8, Look, Lord, here and now I give. In verse 9, it says, Today salvation shall come to this house. Uh, you know, it, it, you can almost hear the sounds behind that passage. Bing, bang, boom. It all comes together. After one meeting with Jesus, Zacchaeus' heart is set right. Immediately, we read, uh, he sold his stock in greed, and he invested heavily in generosity, and his checkbook ledger then quickly reflected his new set of priorities. <laughs> I don't know exactly what had happened at the close of verse 10, but it's pretty easy to imagine the silence of the crowd as they're, as they're trying, to, try, trying, to, trying to make sense of what they've just seen, and they're grappling with the implications of what they've just encountered. It says right away in verse 11, while they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable. While they were listening to this. The mission of Jesus was ringing in their ears the last words of verse 11, that that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. They've just seen it happen and and, and those words are ringing through their ears, and for them now it becomes a very teachable moment. In verse 11 it says, He went on then to tell them a parable, helping them make sense of this process. It's clear from the very beginning that the lesson in this parable is intended to be a major correction to their understanding of the kingdom of God, or better yet, a major correction of their expectation of what it would be to have a relationship with the king of this kingdom of God. You see that right away in verse 11. It says, He went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought, they had this in their mind, that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Bing, bang, boom. It's obvious that the the people had formed certain conclusions about Jesus as well as the kingdom of God, and conclusions that were being strengthened by what they had just seen with Zacchaeus, that that the kingdom of God would would appear suddenly, bing, bang, boom. 
and that the Messiah would burst on the stage, bing, bang, boom, and that they would finally have a Lord they could embrace, just like he had embraced Zacchaeus, bing, bang, boom. Some of you may labor with the similar thought, or at least aspiration. You, you wish your life could be just as radical as what you see in others, like what you might see in Zacchaeus. You go through your days saying, you know, God, would you please just zap your message on the sidewalk with a, with a bolt of lightning? Would you do that for me, please? I want something radical. You've made it happen for others. Would you make it happen for me right now? But it doesn't. And you wonder, what's it all about? Now what do I do? Now, relationship with Jesus Christ is incredibly profound, and the work of his Spirit is certain in its power. But in the telling of this story, Jesus reveals the depth of a dynamic that goes beyond the spectacular and comes down right to the mundane and the simple, to the lives that we live. And it takes us to the heart of what it means not only to be a disciple, but to become a disciple as well. Now, as I have it on your outline, the story includes a number of, of, of key ingredients, elements, as it were. The first element that we have, if you see it in the passage, is that there is a nobleman in this story who goes away, in verse 12, to a distant country to have himself appointed as king and then return. Now, let's be very clear about a few points here. This nobleman represents Jesus, who is seen already by the people with a high degree of nobility. He's a teacher, a prophet, a healer. There's tremendous respect that surrounds Jesus. And, and even as he's asked his disciples earlier, who do men say that I am? There are some who say, well, possibly you're the son of God. There's already a nobility that belongs to Jesus. Make that connection and then go back to the story where this nobility leaves his estate or his realm of responsibility to ratify then his full identity as the king. And again, Jesus is illustrating the path that lies before him, a path which would then bring him to Jerusalem that would end in the cross, and that in the ending of the cross would certainly send him to a very distant country where his identity as king of kings and lord of lords would be ratified. So we got that first element, okay? The first element of the story. The second element of the story is actually two parts. We have people, two groups of people. Uh, The first... Uh, Ten in number are the servants of that nobleman. Notice servants, not slaves. Servants. And they live their lives in whatever obedience there is in relationship with the nobleman. Their service, their daily agenda, their working concerns, and their affairs are pretty much determined by their commitment to serve the nobleman's interests, by their job. And whether or not they take that role of obedience to heart, well... That, in fact, becomes the biggest question that this story will reveal, how they've taken it to heart. So stay with me on that question. Now, there's a second group of people in this story here, and you see them described in verse 14 as the nobleman's subjects, the general population under under his responsibility, under under his authority. That's a general population who, whether they like it or not, and as the verse reads, they don't like it. In fact, they hate it. Please note that they were his subjects, which means that they did live with some degree of accountability under this nobleman. 
but not being direct servants. They weren't bound by the same sort of heartfelt obedience. And, and when it says that they hated, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were hostile or rebellious, uh, as though, uh, although some of them probably could have been uh, had their feelings been made known. But as for their hatred, it could have been as simple as they could have cared less about this nobleman and that they just resented him. And in many ways, the big question in this story, the one that reveals the nature of the heart of obedience and its consequences for them has already been answered. They hated this nobleman. So here is the elements they're building up. We have a nobleman, we have two groups of people whose relationship with the nobleman will be tested. One more, we have a mandate. As part of their service, the nobleman hands over one mina to each of the servants with a specific instruction, a mandate. Verse 13, put this money to work until I get back. Please notice, it is not a gift, but it is is a trust for them to invest that sets the stage for the fourth element that we have here, fourth element, which is a challenge. Verse 13, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. And that challenge is a matter of accountability. There will be a day of reckoning, a day that finally arrives in verse 15 when he was made king, returned home, sent for the servants to find out what they had gained with what they had been given. And this challenge comes as a moment of truth. Now before we arrive at that moment of truth, let me add some context. This is probably, well, this is the longest and probably most complicated parable that we will find in the Gospel of Luke which requires some care in study and understanding. Some of you may already recognize some of the elements of this story as being very similar to a parable that actually appears in Matthew 25, where a rich man with three servants hands out talents, not minas, to invest and then measures their investment. Does that sound like a familiar parable? And you may think, oh, they're the same parable. They are not. Now, I'm not going to go into the deep weeds of exegetical debate between these two stories, only to say that I believe that they are two different stories with two different details meant for two different purposes. Now, they do share the same good plot line, and for sure, Jesus is certainly allowed to repeat himself in order to make his points in drawing a story. But let's take care to unwrap this particular parable. And to do that, it helps really to understand a little bit of background about this story. Look at verse 2 again. It says, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, you may not know it, but there is a historical background to this story. It was probably clipped from the headlines and would have then been very familiar to the people. In AD 4, the year 4, can you imagine writing that on your check? (laughs) You know, 4, that's about it, Okay. In AD 4, Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, was in line to inherit his father's throne. But he had to go to Rome to get Caesar's permission to rule. Now, in that time, it took for him to go to Rome and be, you know, finally appointed, uh, uh, which was somewhere in the range of about a year or so, a group uh, from Jerusalem was sent to Rome with a petition to oppose his appointment. And according to their petition, they refused to accept Archelaus as king. And for whatever reason, Caesar Augustus was not 
pleased with the petition and the petitioners when they arrived and went ahead and crowned Archelaus as king. And their petition failed, and, and uh, when it failed, there were also consequences because their petition revealed them already to be the king's enemies, and as enemies, they then re- they, they suffered the consequences. That's the backstory behind this. And Jesus says, uses it as a frame to reveal something crucial about what it means to have a relationship with him. Because after all, when all is said and done, it's not a story or a tale or a parable. It is the truth. He is the Lord, whether we agree with him or not. He is the King of kings, whether we agree with it or not. He is the Lord of lords, whether we agree with it or not. The Bible speaks of that in the book of Philippians, of that reality, that God exalted Jesus, him, to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, whether they like it or not. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess, whether they like it or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the fact is, there will be a point in time when he comes again that there will be no mistaking of his identity. Whatever thoughts you may have had of him in the past, even noble thoughts, noble thoughts of him as a nobleman, a a teacher, a prophet, or maybe a role model, they will all be assessed at his coming. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and whatever thoughts there have been in your mind to either dismiss him or to ignore him or to resent him, the attitude of hate that is seen already in the subjects here, those things will be dealt with in full. But no, make no mistake, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he has the ultimate claim on all lives, no matter what position we are in, either servants or subjects. All are accountable to him in both their actions and their attitudes. And here is where this complicated parable gets somewhat tricky. Keep in mind, Jesus is speaking to a group who has just witnessed the remarkable bonding of a relationship between Jesus and Zacharias. I mean, Zacchaeus. (laughs) Zacchaeus. The wee little man. And are probably wondering to themselves, now what do I have to do to have the same sort of relationship with this Jesus. How can I get close to this nobleman or maybe even king? I would like to have a bing, bang, boom in my own life. What do I have to do? And you may wonder the same thing. And what this parable suggests is that the answer is really, in fact, quite humble and at hand. First, you recognize that your life is not as independent as you think, but that, in fact, you do already live in a realm that belongs to a sovereign and noble Lord. But even more, that that you now make it your business to be more than just a subject of that that realm, but that you make yourself a servant of that Lord, living in accordance with the laws of that kingdom realizing that his business is your business, his agenda is your concern, and and what he gives you will be held in faithful trust. That is the first step of this wonderful relationship. Adopt the servant's posture and take it to heart. 
That's how it starts. In verse 13, where each of the ten servants are given the same amount of money. Same amount. Notice that. And they are told to put it to work while he is away. I'll be back, he says. Sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger, doesn't he? I'll be back. Now, this money represents more than just cash. Uh, But it also entails all the resources or talents that God has placed in his servants' hands, their authorities and everything. Now, you may have heard it said that we serve God with our time and our treasure and our talents. God has already invested. He's created us with, with an investment. And, and, and he's saying, simply do business with these things. Do business with this, the master says. And then I'll be back. And then we'll talk. Now, as a side note, I find it interesting here that the servants have complete freedom to invest God's gifts any way they wish. In fact, the only order here is to use it. There is no indication of an expected profit margin on the part of the nobleman. (laughs) He, he, He doesn't look at them and say, use it and you better make a profit. He never says that. He says, just use it. The way Jesus puts it, you sense that the master has all the confidence in the world in the power of the currency he has given them. He has given the servants already some things that he knows will work if used. And why leave that impression? Because our Lord has all the confidence in the power of the currency that he has already invested in you. What he's created of you. And and, and he knows that those who would be obedient to him and would serve him, and even in the most simple fashion, will, will eventually succeed. His only command here is to use it. Put it to work in your life. I love, I love what Howard Hendricks has said. He says, it is required of us that we be faithful, not successful. <laughs> Let me repeat that again. Because this is the requirement of these, of these servants. It is required that they be faithful, use it, not necessarily be successful. And you better make a profit. It is required that we would simply be faithful. Not necessarily successful. Why? Because faithfulness is that wonderful discipline that does something more than just produce something out there. It is something that produces something in here. It opens our hearts daily to make our life all about the master and not about ourselves. And such daily obedience to be faithful only allows us to recognize the fullness of our master when he looks us in the eye and we see that he is more than just a noble person. He is, in fact, the king and the Lord of all. It's a daily discipline that opens our hearts and prepares us to receive him as king. Now, please keep this in mind as you consider the people who are now gathered around Jesus at this moment. I really don't know how many there were, but I can imagine that in this crowd that was circling Jesus, there were a certain percentage of people here who, who were really serious about their faith, about their religion. Just like us, like you, maybe like me, they were serious about being obedient to their religion. Given what they had, the Ten Commandments, the Law, the Prophets, the Feasts and the Sacrifices. There were those in this crowd who had taken seriously to heart what God had required them out of the Old Testament. After all, that's 
What we read at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, there we read, once everything has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. This is what life is all about. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment. That's what it says in closing Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And I imagine that there were a certain percentage in that group that had followed that to a T. But I cannot help but think that deep down inside, they also may have found themselves wondering, that's great, but is that all? Is my obedience just all a matter of religion? Is there no relationship? I mean, I will be faithful and I will take up my whole duty to fear God and keep his commandments. I mean, I believe that there is a God who has a purpose for my life and will judge my every deed. But what I really have it in my heart is to know that he loves me and that I love him and that he would call me by name and I would be able to call him and and, and that when he calls me by name, he would come to my house and that he would sup with me. I want something more than religion. I want a relationship. Well, apart from everything else that can be said of this parable, the beautiful lesson and the very practical lesson that we have here that I take to heart as I've studied it and bring to you this morning is that, in fact, there is a very rich reward in store for a faithful heart. When the nobleman returns... Even though he is the king of kings and the lord of lords, the first thing that he does is check up on his servants. He calls them into his presence. And if I were to uh, paraphrase this particular passage, he, he calls them into his presence to ask them, hey, how are things going? How you doing? That's what we say in Chicago. How you doing, eh? Okay, that's what we say in, that's at least what I say in Canada. You see that in verse 15? He was made king, and he returned home, and he sent for his servants in order to find out what they had gained with it. You can almost hear the questions on, hey, so how did it go? And at this moment, their life of service is now being taken to a whole new level, one of relationship as well as responsibility. And when the first two give the report, it's more than just a financial statement. It it is, in fact, a testimony of diligence and a demonstration of faithfulness. Look at the reports. Verse 10, the first one said, I was able to double the amount that you gave. That's my paraphrase. Verse 19, the second was able to say, I was able to get at least a 50% return. Uh, That's, again, my paraphrase. Now, remember, their instructions had not been, you better make a profit, but simply just use it. So I I, I suppose it should have been no surprise that when the king speaks that we find the real measure of success was what he had found in their heart and in their character rather than from their hand. Verse 17, well done, good servants. You've been proven trustworthy. Not you've you've been proven to be successful. No, you've been proven to be trustworthy, faithful. As if to say, you've taken my commands to heart and that is all that I really had asked for you to do. And that's great. And I suppose for for both of those two, that would have been enough to know that their service was acceptable in the sight of their king. But the king did not stop there. Notice this. He went on to take their service to a whole new level. Not just one of faithful service as servants, but now as responsible partners 
in his kingdom. To the first he says, I now give you charge of ten cities. And to the other, I am giving you charge of five cities. Notice the significant change here. It is no longer a a matter of money anymore. He's not handing out minas. It is a matter of shared governance, where he is making them partners in his kingdom. They now have a noble relationship, one with the king, and this is the rich reward, a relationship, a meaningful relationship, a noble relationship with the king of kings and the lord of lords. What a relief for those who have been diligent in their obedience, the the steady eddies who day after day and month after month and year after year do the right thing and do it from the heart, serving in obedience to God's claim in their life. What a thrill it is to hear the King of kings and the Lord of lords say, well done, good and faithful servant, well done, joined me in my kingdom. I cannot help but think that those two words, well done, contain all of the blessings that are promised by Jesus Christ to those who are diligent. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 begins with with a list of such promises of blessings. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, For they shall be called the sons of God. Not just servants, but but children. Part of the family of God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Diligent and faithful in all things. For they shall see God. And in seeing God, we'll hear from him two words that will matter most. Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. What a gift. And and, and it's one that touches so many hearts. For this audience here in Luke, where a life of faithfulness had been built on a longing for something more, something that they had seen suddenly come to a guy like Zacchaeus, Jesus has a word of assurance that echoes the promise made by our Heavenly Father again in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you as well. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. (laughs) Open the door, and who's standing there but Jesus saying, well done. Well done. And he's right there with a blessing. Well done, good and faithful servant. For so many here, even in Ebenezer, who for days and weeks, months, and even years have served and served and served again and again and again with a heart of faithfulness, you need to hear these words as well. So on the authority of God's word, let me say them to you now. On behalf of Jesus Christ, who is your Lord of Lord and King of Kings, well done, good faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant to each of you. And at this point, I probably could just close. But I know that you know the story isn't finished. (laughs) I know that some of you are following along and you realize there's a little bit more and it's a little dark. In verse 20, it says, a third servant steps forward and he confessed 
that he's got nothing to show for his service. In fact, he had buried it. It didn't mean anything to him, and as much as it didn't mean anything to the nobleman. And for time's sake, let me sum up his report in verse 20. Here's your meaning. Take it back. It's unused. It didn't mean anything to me. I wasn't sure if you were ever coming back, but if you did, I know you're a hard man, so take it back. Can I go now? Can I go now? To carry the analogy of the parable here, it's as if he's saying, yeah, I was aware that you that I had religion, you'd given me something, but it didn't mean anything to me. In fact, like all the rest of your subjects uh, (laughs) in the realm of your authority, I had no use for you or any of your stuff. And so I suppose you might call my indifference hate, but there it is. Uh, Can I go now? Now, I don't have time to unravel the last verse, that verse that says, uh, the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them to me, and, I will, and, and slay them in my presence. That's a pretty dark, dark verse. The execution of God's enemies, of king's enemies. It, it, it would sure, certainly, however, give pause to anyone who insists that God's greatest concern is to wrap up all of history with a final punchline, and a good time was had by all. <laughs> If anything, it leaves us understanding there are consequences and severe consequences that deserve careful reflection, which then brings me to the final thought. I want you to notice here that of the ten, of the ten, only three give their report to the king, which, which leaves seven standing there weighing their report (laughs) according to what they have just heard. They're thinking, the king is weighing not what we've produced, but what's in our heart. It's faithfulness. He's rewarding what he finds within. And he's rewarding one way or the other as well. It's kind of a twist on the commercial that, that I'm sure you've seen. They're asking themselves a the question, you know, what's in your wallet? Only here in Luke, you have seven people pondering the question, what's in my heart? And I would suggest to you that it's not just seven servants in Luke, but it would entail every single one of us in this sanctuary. Pondering that question, what is in my heart? In relationship to my Lord. Consider all that God has given you. It's time for you to make up your mind. When you stand before the Lord, he's going to ask, come, tell me, what did you do with what I have given you? How will you answer? What will you say? And will you hear him return to your report and say, Well done. Well done.